This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Exporting 13th Age Icons. Nathan Pauletta. The Repairer of Reputations. And the Neoplatonic Academy. Over the Edge, the twisted RPG of counterculture conspiracy, weird science, and urban danger. Reimagined for its third edition by its original creator, Jonathan Tweet, for a new generation of role players. New narrative rules improve storytelling. New character traits propel drama. Every conspiracy, every character, and every location is given a fresh new twist. The Edge is the weirdest city in the world. Get into trouble. Question your place in the crazed multiverse. Take a draft of madness. Transcend mortal limits. Fight a baboon! Along the way, you might find out who really controls humanity. Unless, of course, you've been working for them all along. Fast dramatic character creation, laser-focused on creating dynamic protagonists. A simple 2 die 6 resolution mechanic. Inject shocking unexpected outcomes through good twists, bad twists, and twist ties. Three strikes, and you're dead. But until you're risking that third strike, you can safely take big risks, electrifying gameplay with dramatic, exciting moments. Plan your trip to the island you only think you remember by visiting at atlas-games.com slash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. Please remember... Liberty is job one. Disarmament means peace. It's polite to speak English. And of course, paranormal activity is perfectly legal. Thank you for your consent. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the carpeted confines of the gaming hut. And here, in the center of the gaming hut, where the escalation die usually stands, there is not an escalation die, because we are not playing 13th Age, but per a request from Patreon backer Remy Perman, we are playing with 13th Age, specifically... Rami asks, I would adore advice on stealing icons from 13th Age for other games. The article about it, Read Dracula Dossier, is one of my favorites. And just as a little tip to people out there praising Ken and or Robin in the question, gets your question booted up the list. <laughs> yes. Uh, in this case, praising a, an article that you wrote a while back for the uh, the Dracula Dossier, incorporating one of the uh, core rules concepts of 13th Age, which as we know, is Jonathan Tweet and Rob Hainso's cool love letter to D&D. It's a D20 game. And one of the things that they do to encourage uh, sort of loosey-goosey uh, sandbox play with player idea meets GM inspiration uh, form of improvised storytelling is to assign you relationships, good and bad, to uh, the 13 icons who are uh, one of the main features of the setting of that game. And uh, the whole idea of the, the setting of the, the Dragon Empire setting of 13th Age is that it is sort of uh, half developed and waiting for you to add the other half. But there are these powerful entities. They are not uh, gods. They're not distant uh, figures. Uh, but they uh, have a lot of influence in the world. They have a lot of followers. And uh, you start as, as uh, the game uh, with relationships, positive and negative, toward these 
beings. And uh, so at the uh, at the top of play, you make a roll, and that determines, and that sort of gives the GM a list of potential plot hooks uh, to try and weave into whatever the, uh, the evening's uh, galamafri of uh, F20 fun is, is going to wind up being. Um, and so uh, you took that basic idea uh, and elaborated it uh, for Dracula dossier. Yeah. First, I took the basic idea and I figured out how to put it into Knights Black Agents, which you have to do before you can elaborate it for uh, any setting, is you have to figure out how that fits into your game. And basically, uh, you take the relationship points, you can buy them with, um, with uh, build points. They act sort of like the later ability agency that I introduced in, um, uh, Fall of Delta Green in that they give you uh, knowledge of how that, uh, icon, that faction works in Knights Black Agents. Icons aren't like the, the high druid. They're like the CIA, um, or Royal Dutch Shell or something. So you have a relationship with a, powerful transnational actor that can manipulate things in secret or come smash you, smash you, which is basically the same as having a relationship with a Hydra. It's the same basic concept. Um, and then when those roles come up in play, as in 13th Age, you roll those relationship dice at the beginning of the scenario. At the beginning of every session would sort of uh, jink the game a little too much, I think, in Knights Black Agents, but you roll at the beginning of every scenario just to see, oh, this is when the CIA has, you know, oh, we've, we've spotted him, we'd better send a guy to hassle him, or send a guy to help him if your relationship with the CIA is positive. And then, as those come up, that builds the sense of a world that has a deeper reality than just the players and their immediate objective. And that's the good thing about relationship roles in 13th Age or in any other game is that you have these forces that realistically would be meddling with people as proactive and dangerous as player characters traditionally are. So step one yeah. is, in this case, you gumshoe-ized uh, the uh, rules from an F20 game, and that's mm-hmm. going to be your first step in uh, translating this to any other game and seeing what is the mechanical way that I can get to the basic goal of having uh, players uh, determine uh, at, uh, maybe at the top of the session, maybe at the top of the scenario, whatever it is, which of their various relationships comes to play in this instance. So uh, to look at another example, uh, the new RuneQuest uh, gives you the option of taking passions and those are uh, inspired to uh, some extent by the uh, passions from Pendragon, as is appropriate for a basic role-playing-based game. Uh, but they're um, more expansive. They can sort of be self-defined the way that uh, the abilities in Over the Edge or some of the abilities that the one uh, unique thing is in 13th Age. And so you can decide that you are uh, loyal to Argraph or that you hate bandits. And that then is an example of something where you're looking at the rule set. Is there already something in in this rule set that is kind of similar to icons and often uh, in a a contemporary game or an update of an older game, as in this example, uh, there will be. So all you need to do with RuneQuest is say, well, at the top of each session, I want everybody to pick a passion to roll that's uh, one of their relationship passions if they have one. And the person who gets uh, in, in that case would be the, the lowest role that person or entity or, or, uh, will then come into play somehow as I improvise my way through this scenario. So, uh, most games these days come with some form of, uh, relationship rules to tie you into a cast of supporting characters or a community. So, uh, step one is look at what you've already got in your rules set and then just build Uh, whatever you need to on top of that in order to kind of emulate the same basic idea. And a lot of times 
uh, you will have to do very little because uh, the uh, designers of other games uh, will have also thought of this. Right. Like there's already bonds in most of the um, uh, Powered by the Apocalypse games. And so you can just say in, in, in addition to the bonds with my fellow characters or with uh, uh, various bits of the, of the, of the scenario, I have bonds with the larger setting and I can have those have a mechanical impact just like they have in uh, my bond with my, my buddy, the paladin would have the same impact as my bond now with the, uh, the, the high druid again, because we're back in F20. And so when you then move down from game to setting from 13th age to dragon empire, from Knights black agents to Dracula dossier, you say specifically, who are the, you know, 13 is a good number because it's uh, big enough that everyone doesn't feel like they have to choose the one good one. And it's small enough that you can sort of keep track of it. I mean, the human brain is sort of taps out around seven or nine, but 13 is not God awful. Um, most people can remember 13 things, you know, your Zodiac plus one, your apostles plus one type stuff. Or you can glance at a list of 13 things. Yeah. And, and take it in very rapidly. So in the Dracula dossier, for example, the icons include Dracula. Edom, uh, a bride, uh, uh, the the mob, which I called the octopus, uh, Echelon, one of the Five Eyes uh, surveillance agencies, MI6, the circus, uh, the CIA, the company, uh, the Russians, the Romanians, the Germans, um, some independent vampire hunting team, generally uh, assumed to be the Slayer, um, and and uh, the Cross, so the Vatican would would have a, a possible role, and so you have all of these various potential factors within the world of the Dracula dossier that your character might well have a pre-existing relationship with. And then those allow you to, again, make the world feel more realistic because in a real world, if you and a bunch of your buddies are running across Europe, shooting off rocket launchers and um, uh, endangering everybody while you're trying to kill Dracula in the real world, yeah, the CIA might take an interest in what's going on, or the Russians might take an interest in what's going on. And this organically pulls it in, and it lets you know, oh, is this the Russians coming to kill you, or is it the Russians coming to point you at a foe of the Russians that you also want to blow up with a rocket launcher? And that provides, uh, like you say, a basis for for adding an improvisational plot element into a what can seem like a canned or a cooked or a railroaded storyline. So uh, if you've already got a setting in place to refer to, the process of coming up with your list of fourteen or 13 is to, as you did with uh, Dracula Dossier, look at who the powerful forces are and look at a sense of contrast between them. Because if you have, you know, essentially 12 former deities of war, uh, that uh, is going to, you're going to have to differentiate between them uh, really radically so they don't seem to all be based on the same concept. So if you, again, look at 13th Age and see that all of the different high fantasy archetypes that they've drawn on, you can see that they're all sort of easy to grasp. And they uh, also, another important thing is make sure that they're working at cross purposes uh, because that also ties you into the world. And certainly with your example uh, from Dracula dossier, these are groups who are all contending with one another. And so if I roll uh, the octopus uh, one week and we get involved with, you know, the, the Russian mob and that becomes an important part of the, uh, adventure. If you are, if then, uh, Edom, uh, comes up the next week, the GM can go, well, how can I tie these two things together? What does Edom have to do, uh, with the mob? Why are they presumably in contention with the mob? How does that story build on, uh, this story as well? So that not only are you able to tie the characters to the icons, but you're able to, over time, tie these icon, 
uh, plot lines to one another so that they seem to be part of a, an organic whole. Because one of the challenges uh, of GMing uh, this style is uh, dealing with all of the po- potential plot hooks and making it seem like something. So when I ran 13th Age, I cut back on the number of potential interventions by icons that would occur in any given session because, uh, at least for the way that I run, that was just too much stuff to keep on board. Yeah, I have, I have the same exact situation going on in my 13th Age game. And I've changed the icons, obviously, since my 13th Age game is set in the Hellenistic era. I've changed it to the Greek gods, because it turns out there's roughly 13 Olympians, give or take. Right, and it turns out the, the Greeks thought up contrasting gods with strong iconic concepts. Yeah, they, they, they were good. They, they knew branding. I'll tell you what about the Greeks. So, so again, in, in this case, they roll just like in standard 13th age, they roll every session, which as you say, if it was the gods popping up every time would be super annoying, but, or super crowded, let's say. Especially if Zeus comes up every, every week. But in this case, I can, they can just translate it into, if you have a Zeus, a six, then that gives you a plus two on something Zeus approves of, such as say cast a lightning bolt spell. And so that makes up for the relative dearth of magic items in both the 13th age universe and the Hellenistic era by giving you a sense, Oh, the gods are working through me. I rolled a plus one with Hermes so I can do something tricky that may come back to bite me in the, in the, in the butt because a five is the iffy roll where the six is the good and hearty roll. Right. So then the question is, uh, is my setting actually amenable to this so that, uh, for example, the uh, world of the Esoteris is sort of designed, uh, there, there is a, a sort of a world-spanning uh, arc, a, a world breaker, but in general, it sort of assumes sort of a case of the week format where you're investigating a, a really involved mystery. And so, uh, in that case, having another sort of layer of uh, uber conspiracy on top of that is going to be confusing and will do more to introduce sort of red herrings than not. So, if uh, the, the I guess the overall point is that the icon system is good for a setting that assumes uh, contention between a range of uh, intelligent or human or sapient forces and that you as the players are interacting with that. So you want to ask yourself, is my game about that uh, or will uh, introducing icons to it um, make uh, you know, completely change the, the format of the game and, uh, whether you want that or not. And I would submit that most of the time, uh, you don't want to introduce a superstructure into your game that completely knocks its assumptions, uh, off its rocker. You want to find a game that's set up to do that in the first place. Yeah. If you were playing, for example, a game where you are the last of the V8 interceptors on a blasted post Holocaust universe and you're driving around making your own way in the world, then icons would would go against that sort of uh, one woman one uh, Camaro sensibility. Whereas if you're in a game that takes place in a in a larger setting, a larger s- society, then icons make more sense. So if you're in a in a, a roistering fantasy city, then you might have icons like the Thieves Guild or whatever that would legitimately come poke their 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 nose into your business. And then obviously it's up to you to say, well, I'm running a Western game, so it's sort of uh, one man, one horse, but also there are towns, there are Pinkertons, there are, uh, the, the, the Lakota Indians. Any of these could be, you know, mad at me or help me. 
So maybe I kind of want icons in my Western game, but then I'll only roll the dice when we get to town, not when we're out on the high prairie. Uh, and, and that maybe is the compromise that you can, you can offer. So it's not an all or nothing. Uh, even with a setting, you can say, I, I can see where this is where we would have icons and this is maybe where icons are not playing a part in the world, either because the worship of the Greek gods hasn't extended that far or we're doing a bottle episode where it legitimately makes no sense for the CIA to show up, even though it's a house in Switzerland. They're just not going to show up during this 24-hour period that the episode's supposed to take place in. Right. So if something is very episodic or very picaresque, uh, you don't want to use the icons. But it doesn't have to be on a gigantic world-spanning scale. You could do Deadwood, for example, mm-hmm. and have relationships to Swearingen and the sheriff and, uh, you know, the the characters who in the show are the, the, company. the, the, yeah. the, the protagonists. And in your version of Deadwood would sort of be the less active uh, supporting characters that you uh, ping pong uh, between. So uh, it doesn't have to be about, uh, you know, control of the world. It can be about control of a town. But it does, I think, have to be about forces vying with each other for control or influence over something, which is um, some games, uh, Vampire certainly, uh, but uh, not so much others like Paranoia, for example. Right. Uh, well, on that note, uh, I think we can uh, consider that we've given perfectly iconic answers to this question and can safely move to see what lurks on the other side of this exciting commercial message. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Hyde, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the role-playing game to the award-winning Gumshoe Engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? Welcome once again to yet another segment of Ken and or Robin Talk to Someone Else. And today, it is I, Ken, talking to someone else, not just someone else, someone, capital someone else, Nathan Pauletta, Chicago game designer extraordinaire, artist and artiste. Welcome to the podcast, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for making the hike up to, as you say, Pauletta country. Right, yes. Nathan lives, if you look at a map of Chicago, and you go to the very northern edge of the map of Chicago, <laughs> Nathan lives like in that little copyright uh, area. 
Uh, it's not a hundred percent true, but it's pretty true. It's farther. Yeah, yeah. it's pretty true. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lawrence and Paulina, for those looking to <laughs> send him votive gifts. So you got into game design via real design, or did you begin real design and have uh, where where do those two <laughs> palette of strains overlap? Uh, somewhat simultaneous, I suppose. So I started making games uh, when I was in high school, but I was at that point, you know. I was a nerd game person who was interested in making games, and then I also had, like, a real career that I wanted to try and figure out. So that was not my plan. I was never like, I'm going to grow up and be a game designer. No one ever plans that. <laughs> um, but my uh, real life, as I say, uh, ended up turning into, uh, I worked uh, primarily in live theater, uh, doing construction and building stuff um, for for plays and musicals and, and whatnot. And then when it started getting to where I didn't want to lift heavy things for the rest of my life. Yeah. Uh, I, could, I got that point a little earlier than you, I think, <laughs> career-wise. Yeah. I decided to go back to school for design, for, like, industrial design, which is what brought me to Chicago. Uh, but, of course, I could not just go to an industrial design program. I went to the Designed Objects program, which is arty design at the School of the Art Institute. And so when I was in, like, design school, essentially, a lot of the stuff that I'd been doing for game design which I've been doing on the side all this time, I was finding, like, the lessons very cross-compatible between, right. uh, you know, doing, like, graphics and doing objects and thinking about the impact of your work with an audience and stuff like that with, like, games and how they affect social interactions and uh, all that stuff. And then when that storied second career also didn't take off, I was fortunate enough to be able to uh, take a gamble on moving into doing games and freelance work full-time. And so far, uh, it has been, I wouldn't say paid off, but it has not yet not paid off. You have not yet hit the ground. Right. Like yes. the man in the anecdote. So far, so good. <laughs> yes. Um, now, whereabouts in your game design career? Because, of course, I met you very, very early when you mm-hmm. were doing, uh, even Continuum, I think, was the first game of yours that I knew about, right? Well, I did... Continuum's a different time travel game. Right. I did a time travel game called Time Stream. Time Stream, right. I, I got that backwards, right. sorry. Sorry, Con- Continuum is a much more ambitious right. project. Yeah. yeah, But you were... I remember yeah. your time game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Carrie, I think, was the next yes. thing that I saw from you. And that seemed like kind of a big jump. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first For one... Sure. I mean, time travel is a monster anyway. It'll mm-hmm. ruin... It's ruined better men than both of us. <laughs> but... Uh, but when you're doing, but Carrie, I thought was like a, a big aesthetic jump for you. Now, is that when did you start doing industrial design mm. in parallel? Where do you see that the inflection point in your? Uh, so Carrie, which was 2005 or so, and so I think we actually physically met at that Gen Con, I think right. 2006, mm-hmm. which sounds like a really long time ago. Now. It does, doesn't it? Um, so I was still working in theater at that time. Right. Yeah. Um, so I didn't uh, move into my design program until around the time I was re-releasing uh, Annalise. Right. So, okay. vampire game after that. Right. So, so it's between Annalise and then, oh god, what's the one after Annalise for you? Oh boy. Um, uh, so, after Annalise would be uh, my next big thing, and probably the thing that anyone would know me about, or would know me from at this point, it's is worldwide wrestling. worldwide wrestling. Right. Yeah. But that, I mean... Again, with games in between, my yeah, micro games right, and yeah, other projects, a lot of little things. Yeah, 
And so worldwide wrestling, obviously, it, it took off. It was it was very popular. People love it. Wrestling mm-hmm. people like it as yep. well as game people. It uses the beloved uh, Power by the Apocalypse engine. Mm-hmm. And so in that, for that reason, I sort of put an asterisk in my Nathan Pauletta list. Sure, right? Because mm-hmm. I mean, while I am I am happy to build my career by using other people's engines, <laughs> I think of you as sort of a, you know, one of the, the, the pure quill OG indie game designers mm-hmm. building, you know, crafting every story game element around sure. a, a specific uh, meaning. And uh, that I'm, that's, for example, what super impressed me about Carrie was the way mm. that every mechanic sort of supported that central premise. And that's really like... And Annalise, likewise. Yeah, that, I mean, and that's really kind of my, my design DNA is in, like, games that I learned that from around that time. So, like... Uh, uh, Paul Sega's My Life with Master, right. Jared's um, Inspectors, those kinds of very focused. Every element has a f- is has both a, a functional role in playing the game and also uh, has like an aesthetic quality that right. supports Mountain the theme Witch, of the game. The Mountain Witch is right. another good example. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and, which is not to say that you know, obviously, when you've uh, you've done some work for me on Dracula Dossier and turned in a terrific uh, little section mm-hmm. on the. On the Tepest Tapestries, <laughs> and then did some good graphic work for us as well. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's kind of your your real sort of drive is into that. Yeah, into and that space. I mean, yes, uh, in terms of design, and then I also, you know, am uh, uh, happy to help other people get their projects into the world right. as a freelancer, doing mostly layout uh, for people. Yeah, you've done some terrific projects. layout and terrific graphic design for a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. So those are like the two halves of like what I do, uh, the, the bespoke games. And then, you know, what I this might be a little like elevated, but I like to think of what I do as a freelancer as like helping connect someone who wants to get their thing into the world with the actuality of it being out there. Right. And usually my, my, my skill set is mostly in layout, but if I can help with, you know, consulting, figuring out how to structure your Kickstarter rewards, figuring out how to do print runs, I've been doing more of that recently as right. well. And, and because, like I say, you're sort of, you, you were practically present at the creation, so you sort of have seen all these, <laughs> all these trends that we're both talking about yeah. rise up and carry you, or not carry you, depending <laughs> on how you wrote them exactly, how we both wrote them, uh, to, you know, at least uh, still doing this. Now, before we get to Imp of the Perverse, which is a game of yours that I played in an early, early playtest way back in the day in a yeah, years very ago. artsy Chicago coffee shop. <laughs> I, I think they had to, like, frisk me uh, when I entered to make sure that I, I had art in me. Mm. Uh, filter, we, we did that uh, very early uh, playtest of it. Mm-hmm. But before we get there, let's talk about some more of the Nathan Paletta aesthetic, because... That that's like sort of stuff that you bring into the game. I'm a big fan, for example, of of taking in as much art from all kinds of different mm-hmm. media and all kinds of different directions just to refill the tank. And I'm not saying, oh, this will come in super handy next time I'm writing a five E. Oh yeah, tie in. What I'm saying is, this is art. Mm-hmm. And then at some point, sure enough, it came in handy, <laughs> or sure enough, it just refilled the the tank and let something else float to the surface. Yeah. And for you. Obviously, you have a, a you know an academically trained artistic conception as well mm-hmm. as a personal aesthetic that is sort of got some Art Nouveau going on, maybe a little of that, and then also some sort of seventies, mm-hmm. uh, both the sort of broad, uh, <laughs> the last optimistic era of design seventies, <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. and then also the sort of grungy Rockford Files seventies mm-hmm. as well. Is that 
is is that decade a, a thing that speaks to you personally, or is it just that's when you were ten and noticed <laughs> that things had shapes? Well, I mean, that is, I was, uh, <laughs> I was, I was not born in the seventies. I know you so, are, <laughs> but I appreciate your. Uh, it's I who am terrifyingly old. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I think I, uh, I think like most people, it's hard for me to say like, oh, here is my aesthetic, right? right. Uh, for me, a lot of it is developing, you know, a, a, a voice around a particular project. Um, so it's not that there's a Nathan Paletta a- aesthetic, mm-hmm. there's an Annalise aesthetic. Right. Or yeah. a Tombs of the Mummy Kings. Right. Mask of the Mummy Kings. Mask of the Mummy Kings, yes. Mask of the Mummy Kings aesthetic. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so, but I think there's there's some, like, structural elements that I think are more what I fall back on in terms of, uh, organizing, organizing information, uh, you know, how I like to break things up into sections, how I like to, uh, use, um, a limited palette of elements so right. that it's not an overwhelming, you know, just alt, uh, that kind of stuff. And I also like to find artists, like what I think of as actual artists, fine artists, illustrators, uh, that have, something kind of cool and unique going on that I can then, that then informs what I'm doing. And then, uh, that adds to the overall pe- package. Right. Now for people who want to be the next Nathan Pelletta, which mm-hmm. of course is all of us, are there, uh, tips? Is there a, a, a text that has really helped you? Is mm-hmm. there a, besides looking intensely at everything that you do, mm-hmm. what can someone do that wants to sort of bring some of that into their own design work, either design or design? So, I, what I say when people, when we, when I have a conversation with someone about who's, who's thinking about, like, I want to either make making games more of my life or, you know, make a, make a life making games, um, is mostly, uh, uh, put, put in the reps. Um, you gotta make things in order to make more things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as, uh, as, as hellish a landscape as it creates for us, we do live in an attention uh, economy. Um, but you don't get sustained attention through being flashy. You get it through making good things that attract people that you want to be your audience. And each project you put out expands your reach a little bit, right? And a little bit more, and a little bit more. So it's the it's the old saw about an overnight success takes ten years, mm-hmm. right? It's like right. if you want to get there someday, you just got to start doing stuff, whatever your thing is, if it's illustration, if it's layout, if it's game design, qua making games. Um, and right now is actually a really good time for that because of uh, I think right right now we're in a little bubble of. Uh, of some new design culture things that are really exciting, mostly around like game jams and stuff that's being hosted by the sort of revival of zine culture. Yeah. Revival of zine culture, which, which I thought had left us forever with the eighties. <laughs> right. When, Oh, it's back. I know. Right. I know. It's and back. I got into zines through being, you were saying, uh, you know, you're refilling the hopper with like all kinds of stuff. Right. I got into zines through just, you know, being friends with friends, with people who are zinesters Mostly in the music scene. Right. And, like, I'm not a music writer. I don't pay a whole ton of attention to, like, underground bands or anything. But the energy of those who are in that scene is what compelled me to start doing zine projects. Um, And then I think the Kickstarter zine month promotion really kicked that off as well. Yeah. So, like, there's there's this energy right now for, like, small projects that are very passionate. 
And I think that's a really great place to, to jump in with whatever your ideas are if you're, like, just trying to get started. And if you've been grinding away, making things and putting them out and being like, where are the people? It's like, you just got to keep doing it. Right. Like, I mean, if you keep broadcasting, at some point someone picks yeah. up, right? Yeah. And yeah. there are strategies, right? Some people who are more personable, going to conventions is a really good strategy. Um, or if you have a specific skill that you can, you know, use to help your friends, that's a good strategy because it gets your name out there and gets your work in front of more people. You have to kind of find, but you have to experiment with lots of things. Right. And you have a zine uh, specifically on game design. I do, which I did for the aforementioned uh, Kickstarter. So that is the RPG design zine. Uh, I, very, very clever uh, title. But it is a totally uh, cut and paste uh, zine. So I wrote some original text and then I pulled uh, uh, elements and quotes and pictures out of my game library, photocopied those books, um, cut everything out with exacto and right yep. taped and pasted the old way and, yeah old yeah, school old. well i wanted to do a project with my hands because i yeah, haven't done right, that for exactly. a long time and it was a really good excuse and then it turned out that it was a popular enough idea that i had the time to just do it and do it right which was great mm-hmm. and i'm currently um so that's currently going out to backers i'm almost done and then uh on, it's available on my website as a free download of the pdf which includes a DIY, print it yourself, fold staple. You have the zine, right. same as you would get if you got it from me. Fantastic. Uh, or you can buy the one from me, which has a fun multicolor cover for $5. And right. that'll be up on my website soon. And the website, of course, will be in the show notes. And speaking of things that are available from you on your website, <laughs> uh, let's come back around because we've teased Imp of the Perverse. Mm. This is the Edgar Allan Poe role-playing game of horror in Jacksonian America, unless it's changed again. Oh, no, that's it. That's you got it. it. Okay, yeah. good. It's a psychological horror game uh, inspired by the work of Edgar Allan Poe in a right. you're Jacksonian not, like, gothic. You're, you're not just, you know, playing um, uh, uh, the, the guy who can, who can hear things in his floor. Right, right, right. You're playing stories that might have come out of the same mind or milieu as Poe. Exactly, yeah. You're, 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 playing, you're playing protagonists in the world that generated those stories for him as a writer. Right. But since you are playing them, they're necessarily going to be... A little more expansive and, and, yeah. and complex. Plusher is not a character class. Right. Correct. Right. It's a race. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the game is, uh, uh, it is framed, uh, as, around the hunt for monsters because you, the, the imp of the perverse is what sits on each of your protagonist's shoulders. You have a perversity that you are driven to indulge in, even as you know that it is ultimately going <laughs> to destroy you. And the only way to rid yourself of that imp is to hunt down literal monsters, which are those who have given into their perversity and turned into that expression of whatever right, it is. Right. So it is a action monster hunting game at the same time as it is a psychological what have I become struggle against the darkness game. And you can kind of move the dial either way, depending on your proclivities, right? Um, and it is possible to win in the sense that it is not a descent into darkness uh, it is much easier and much more, you know, you're, you are tempted literally by the mechanics to take the power offered you by the imp. Um, the old dark side points. Right. Yeah. Right. It is very much a, like it's a, the, uh, 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 Clinton Nixon had a thing where his test for a, uh, for a role playing game, he was the, the designer of, um, 
uh, The Shadow of Yesterday, which is a game that you have seen its DNA in many other games, yeah, I promise right. you. But his thing was, is is it a role-playing game? Can I play Star Wars with it? If yes, it's a role-playing game. <laughs> so by that definition, this is a role-playing role game. game. It's yeah. just cooler Star Wars because it's set in 1830s New Orleans, not in right. stupid planets from stupid town. And so, yeah, it's set in the historical 1830s and 40s, uh, Jacksonian era, as the historians say. And it is very much embedded in that history, but hopefully in a way that does not require you to do homework. Uh, I have a lot of material in the book that is an overview of the period, of the various regions of the country, and of kind of three sub-periods within it, because they're kind of thematically right. distinct. Yeah. And hopefully that's giving you lots of little bits. If you want to dive in deeper on something, you can go do your own research. Mm-hmm. But the way that you make characters embeds your protagonists in that world. So right. when you're done making characters, you have someone who has a family, who has a career, who lives in a particular place, who you know, cares about things that are relevant to humanity. Mm-hmm. And then the horror starts to come from the dissonance between their human life and what their imp is pulling them to do and driving them to, right. to try and deal with. Now, did you um, uh, go into any of the sort of uh, psychological... Uh, criticism of Poe or his uh, biography or any of that, or was, or did you just sort of say, I have Poe's literature, I don't need to know about <laughs> the, the, the crazy goofball that was Edgar? <laughs> well, I certainly read, uh, biographies. Um, this is not a literary criticism exercise. Right. There are plenty of, uh, I mean, sources for yes. that, for, uh, for, for Mr. Poe. Uh, he is not necessarily someone to idolize, mm-hmm. I would say, in yeah. any way, really. But, the world that he lived in... I think you and I will both be very lucky if we are uh, taught in as many schools 200 years from now as Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but yeah, this is not a... Uh, the exploration of the game really hinges on your personal investment in your character. And it's not like framing it as, let's let's delve into all the weird stuff that went on in people's minds in this time. It's actually focused on modern conceptions right. of horror so it's, through this lens. So it's so you're using the history to talk about current concerns or current psychological traumas, not necessarily about mm-hmm. uh, worrying about Freemasons. Right. Well I mean if you want to worry about Freemasons you can. Yeah, knock yourself out. Um the yeah it's it's the the directive in the game is you're not playing a protagonist that's concerned with what people of that era quote really would be concerned with. Right. You are filtering what you're concerned with through the character with the distance of the history. Right. But also with the context of the history. You're not in a vacuum. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not a ground up, build the world around your characters kind of game. Right. You've got, there is, there is a reality. You are connected to that reality, right. but the game is not about that reality. The game is about, right. you know, as, as uh, Poe said, <laughs> um, a horror is not of Germany, but of the soul. <laughs> and I think on that note, Very we good. can, uh, uh, listen for the ticking underneath the floorboards or deal with the demon cat and thank Nathan. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, everything you do is terrific. Uh, people, if you want to be a game designer, reading everything Nathan does and following along is a terrific way to do it. Uh, Nathan, thanks so much. Thank you so much for uh, hiking up to Plata Country and uh, making this possible. Absolutely. Imp of the Perverse, everybody, in the show notes. Kaka.
The best of Ask the Gown is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through. Save this podcast from murderous cats by joining such Patreon backers as... Michael Dinos. Ethan Mr. E. Schoonover. Yaj from Edinburgh. Derek McMullen. And Jake Moss. It's time uh, to continue our Ken and or Robin Recycle audio series where we're taking... Uh, a couple of panels that we did at Carcosicon in Poland. And this uh, continues from last week. Uh, this is the panel that Ken led and I uh, gave an assist on where we're talking about uh, Robert W. Chambers himself. And in this snippet, uh, quite extended uh, discussion of the repairer of reputations, uh, Chambers' uh, most elaborated and uh, intriguing story in his Yellow King cycle. Uh, so we've gone through the, the sort of influences. Now, do we know that he went to Paris and studied there as we infer that he did from his stories? Or do, can, or do we simply infer that? I mean, we know that he went. It, it, it is in every single biography of him. It's in the recollections of his friends. I have not seen a, a, a registry book for the Academy Julian, but it's not the sort of thing you can right. lie about. Um, uh, we know, again, based on the testimony of his friends and on uh, every piece of bio biographical information, including his own, provided in interviews that he studied at the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. Now, he has been credited with hanging paintings in the salon. Uh, even Chambers never said that, although his friend... He had, he had a, 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 a great literary friend who was a big booster of, of Chambers. Um, he said that he hung multiple canvases, which is what made its way into the Dictionary of Literary Biography, in his own interview, he said he had three drawings in the Salon of 1889. I looked at the catalog of the Salon of, in 1889 and could not find Chambers' drawings in that catalog. Now, I don't know if the catalog had everything or if the Salon had the Salon and the sort of, you know, secondary Salon. Uh, so I would have to do more research into the depth of art history, which right. is why that piece of data is not in the annotations because right. I couldn't confirm it one way or the other. But even if you ask Chambers, he said he hung three drawings uh, of bulldogs in, in the salon, which is not quite the same thing as a beautiful nature painting, which is, I think, what we're all imagining, or possibly a, a hideous Carcosan vision, which is what, if I ever write a novel yeah. about Chambers' lost salon masterpiece, it's going to be that, obviously. Um, but uh, we, as far as anyone can tell, he did go to Paris, he did study at Julian, he did go to Beaux-Arts, and he came right. back with those credentials and got jobs. And we, and we heavily infer, but do not have strong information on uh, the idea that he spent time in Brittany because he writes a lot about Brittany with the authority of someone who had been there. Who knew it. Right. And with the specific, if you read his nature uh, descriptions, either in ghost stories 
uh, in uh, the Demoiselle Dis or in uh, Mystery of Choice, or you read in his Brittany set uh, novels and fiction. If you read his work uh, in his upstate New York uh, historical fiction, you you can tell uh, when this sort of painterly eye has seen the actual natural landscape. It's very rich and and very. It's actually quite beautiful. If you are a fan of regional writing, there are passages of Chambers where he's describing a forest that are, you know, chef kiss great. Um, and his descriptions of Brittany in Demoiselle Dice and in those other stories have that same feel to them. And we do know, of course, that there was a big artist colony in, in Brittany. Uh, Gauguin, most famously, was there at Pont-Aven. But we also know that um, the uh, uh, instructors at the Beaux-Arts would recommend their American pupils all go to Brittany to paint. I think the imagination is it's a wild western you know, wasteland. You're from a wild western wasteland. You'll get on like a house on fire. Uh, so the, the in, the, it's a very strong inference. It, there is no documented fact because, like I say, there's no documentary trail uh, of, of Chambers' life. But as, as much as you can uh, assert, you can say, yes, he was in Brittany and he was in Munich. And his Brittany stories uh, sort of partake of the uh, weird folklore of that area. Right, the yeah. sort of mixture of uh, Celtic influence and, and French influence uh, sort of combined to make sort of a an untouched cauldron of uh, odd and somewhat sinister folklore that he um, draws on quite effectively. And a lot of that is from a uh, collection of Breton set ghost stories and adapted folklore that was written about 60 years before he wrote, uh, called um, The Foyer of Brittany, basically, and it's a collection of uh, retold folk stories uh, by an earlier French writer, and that had gone into a zillion printings and spawned like a, a like a little um, uh, cottage industry of writing Breton ghost stories in, in French horror writing. And so he would have been familiar with that as well as with his own experiences in Brittany. So I guess uh, the next step is to go through the stories and see what... Uh, oh, no, you have a discovery about Black Star. So right. where they come from. Um, you guys know the uh, the descript- famous description of Carcosa, that the Black Stars hang in the white skies above Carcosa. Well, because this is, as I say, a virgin field, I am apparently the first person ever to just type the words Black Stars White Sky into Google Book Search uh, and then take out all the chambers... <laughs> Because that exact image appears in a novel, an unfinished novel, by the poet Heinrich Heine, which was uh, translated into English by uh, Charles Godfrey Leland in 1891 as part of the run-up to Heine's centennial. And if I can find it, I can even read that very passage, and we can all judge for ourselves how close that is. All right, so this is from a novel. It's from a a novel called um, uh, Florentine Nights, which Heine wrote in... 1837, and the plot of that is that a woman is dying, because novel, and um, uh, her uh, platonic friend, uh, disappointed lover, I didn't read the whole novel, Maximilian, is telling her anecdotes to distract her from the fact that she's dying, and he mentions, oh, I saw Paganini play, and Paganini apparently, uh, he had a reputation at the time of being in league with the devil, so Heine takes that and runs with it. And he says, but the redder the sea became, so much the more pallid grew heaven. And when at last the waving water looked like bright scarlet blood, then the sky overhead became ghostly clear, all corpse white, and out came the stars. And these stars were black, black as shining anthracite. And as far as I'm concerned, that is a open and shut case. 
of Chambers reading Leland's translation of Heine and saying, oh, that's great. <laughs> I have to use that. Yeah, I'm going to leave out the lake of blood, otherwise it would be yeah, creepy. Right. But... Well, but I'm going to have a creepy lake, Yeah, right? Yeah. And so that, that's, uh, that, that is the vista summoned up by Paganini's violin. And so if anyone's looking for a Paganini to Eric Zahn link via the Lake of Holly, I have just given it to you. And, and uh, in 1893 also, as Chambers is coming back to New York, uh, there is a giant dispute in the New York papers about where they're going to put the Heine monument because Heine was Jewish and in the German Empire at the time, no one wanted to build a giant monument to a Jewish poet because they were uh, anti-Semites. And uh, the German community in New York was like, well, we will build a monument to Germany's great poet, Jew or no Jew. And then there was a great argument between all the neighborhoods in New York as to where they were going to put the monument because it turns out some neighborhoods in New York were a little anti-Semitic anyway. But... <laughs> The discussion of where they were going to wind up putting the monument was in the papers, so Chambers would have been seeing Heinrich Heine's name over and over and over again, even as he's writing the the story, uh, Repair of Reputations. So, short of Chambers' own handwriting saying, I did not rip this off from Heinrich Heine, I promise, uh, I think you have to pr- pretty much consider that one solved. But that's, I mean, again, because no one had really done any critical looking at Chambers, these sorts of, you know, unconsidered trifles are just lying around all over the literary landscape for me to pick up. Uh, so the stories themselves, uh, uh, which one do you want to start with in terms of uh, uh, breaking them down and uh, seeing what insights you glean from them? I mean, so, uh, are there going to be major spoilers? Uh, there might be. Okay. <laughs> I mean, to the extent you can spoiler something written in 1895. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the, the stories do not depend for their effect on plot. Uh, it is not a moment where you are like, oh, well, now I know who the murderer was. The murderer was the universe. Um, uh, they are stories of effect uh, in many ways. And certainly in some of them, the plot is either so rail-thin that it doesn't matter or so convoluted that it's impossible to spoil. So um, in Repair of Reputations, for example, the first story in the collection, it is seemingly set in the year 1920, but we rapidly learn that our narrator is unreliable and has suffered a head injury and worse, has read the play The King in Yellow, a poisonous play that deranges all who read and believe it. And that he furthermore believes himself to be the secret heir to the imperial throne of the United States thanks to his descent from the star Hester. Uh, and we learn this while he is discussing things with a hideous dwarf with artificial wax ears and a murderous cat. So in addition to all of this other stuff, we are expected to believe that his version of reality is reality, and it becomes apparent not so much in that story, but in the other stories set in that same cycle, that whatever else Hildred Castain may have been, emperor or not, he was not in 1920. Internal clues within that story recur in other stories, and if you try to piece together a common yellow mythos, you can't sustain a belief that he's in a real 1920, he's in a fictive, imagined 1920 which may have reality in the Carcosa-verse uh, as a possible world that could occur or a world that you see if Carcosa impinges on you because the reality or unreality of Carcosa is never addressed. Uh, but uh, it is a, it, it's a... It's a great, unreliable narrator story. It's got a lot of Edgar Allan Poe in it, which is the other sort of uh, part of, of, of Chambers that uh, people noticed at the time and that Chambers, I think, probably would have acknowledged. Uh, very uh, similar in a lot of ways to the black cat and the telltale heart about the obsessed narrator who has a monomania that slowly takes over the whole story until the whole story just becomes this sort of 
you know, internalized shriek of despair. Um, and it's very, very effective in addition to being just strange as hell. And certainly, uh, it was probably strange as hell in 1895 for someone to read, in the year 1920, the United States was at peace. And they're like, ooh, what's going on? And then in 1919, the New Republic, uh, book critic reread that story and said, holy crap, Chambers is the first person to ever predict a war with Germany. No one had ever predicted an American war with Germany before Chambers. And we just went through a war with Germany. What's that about? And uh, now, of course, when you read something set in the far-flung future of 1920, it reads like an alternate history or a strange parallel universe. So even the dubious meaning of the story within the story has changed and uh, diverged as we read it in the 21st century. And there are aspects of his 1920s that are strange and bizarre, most prominent among them, the government execution chambers, where um, uh, you can uh, walk into a, a building and commit suicide, and the government will do it for you, and get rid of the riffraff and the undesirable element, uh, because they're all suicidal, which is something that he lifts, uh, not just from a Maupassant story, uh, Andormuz, but also from uh, a lot of other fiction and sort of high-minded chatter that was going on at the time. There was a lot of people proposing uh, the government should have suicide chambers. People shouldn't have to wander around living when they don't want to. And um, uh, Alfred Nobel uh, allegedly went to the Italian government and said, I would like to fund suicide chambers uh, to be set up on the coast of Italy where people can go and enjoy a good wine and then be put to death with a poison gas that I've developed. And the prime minister of Italy said, well, I like the idea, but you remember Italy's Catholic, right? It, we'd, all, we'd all be murdered. <laughs> so we can't do that. But it was very much in the air in the 1890s, the, the awareness of suicide. And part of that is because uh, the brand new mass media of newspapers would publish stories about suicides uh, over and over and over. And so suicide was a national, global even concern in a way in the 1890s that it really kind of hasn't been uh, up until very recently uh, in the West. And that's, uh, I think, why the repair of reputations is... Uh, the most compelling of all of these stories because of the various uh, contradictory layers that you can apply to it now in retrospect where the uh, and one where the author's intent uh, versus the effect of the story is uh, uh, not impossible to parse but is uh, uh, challenging and uh, and I think that we tend to look at a bunch of things in it uh, differently than uh, he would have imagined oh, yes. we would uh, for example uh, the idea is that the We've achieved this state of utopia, which is then under threat by the uh, conspiracy of the yellow sign. But the elements of the utopia to us today also seem profoundly dystopic. Not right. just the uh, government lethal chambers, but the idea that we've you know gotten rid of all of those unpleasant uh, Italian and uh, uh, what's the other? It's foreign-born Jews. Yes. Yes. Uh, have the, the aesthetic influence of, of uh, uh, non. Uh, continental uh, architecture been swept away, and there's the idea that there's a, uh, a black ethno state in the South, which uh, is uh, uh, not probably a good thing in that world. And right. I had to work hard to make it a good thing in the uh, in the role playing game version. And um, uh, that uh, the uh, the United States of that era is profoundly militarized. That's one of the elements of the story that's very much part of the story because. Uh, Castaigne's brother is a captain in the United States cavalry, uh, and is sort of his rival. And so the, 
the the rivalry is presented as between a American cavalryman presented as the ideal, literally the ideal of romance, and Hildred Castain, a uh, failed um, uh, everything who doesn't even want to fish anymore. And that's a sign in Chambers. If you don't want to go fishing, you're you're a monster, and no one should have anything to do with you. And and so Chambers is is putting this sort of ideal masculinity against this broken, decadent masculinity as as part of the story. But of course, our notion of the ideal masculinity is no longer oh good, he's in the cavalry unit that occupies Manhattan. Uh, that is not something that that pops into our head. as, golly, wouldn't that be great? Um, so there's a there's a lot of stuff going on in, in that story and as, as Robbins as a modern reader takes different things away from it than, than Chambers intended but of course that's true with Shakespeare too. Right and that's I think part of the uh, allure of that experience is to explore all of those levels. It is more interesting as an alternate reality tale than it was as a science fiction story. <laughs> Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of Every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. The whirring of chronotons and the clacking of time gears tell us that we're once more standing in proximity to Ken's time machine, which, of course, is the conveyance that Time Incorporated puts our hero in to send him back into history to bend, fold, spindle, and sometimes, yes, even mutilate it. And this time around, Ken, they have tasked you with preventing the closure of the Neoplatonic Academy in 529, good old uh, Justinian, Emperor of Rome. I don't know, as a resident of Ontario, uh, school cuts are on my mind. Uh, ah. And uh, this was uh, perhaps, uh, some say, history's uh, most uh, resonant uh, cutting of funding to a, an educational institution. But first, I think we have to disambiguate our platonic academies. because Yes, because that is the sleight of hand that everyone from Edward Gibbon on down has pulled when they're trying to say that the closing of this particular academy was a big deal. Right. Uh, well, it's a big enough deal for a 15-minute segment. That, that's right, yeah, sure. absolutely. And, and the assumption about it would have been a big deal had it been that big deal, but it isn't that big a deal. The big deal is the academy founded by our old buddy Plato. And he founded it in 387. It uh, was a grove of trees. 387. 
87 BC. 387 BC, yes. Um, uh, it was a grove of trees that they went out and they would argue philosophy. And because everyone involved was kind of rich, they bought the land, put up some walls, put up a sign that said, no man ignorant of geometry should enter here, which <laughs> as, as a yeah. motto is not terrible, I guess. Take your lack of geometry to a bunch of other trees. Right. Go talk to some other trees, some jerk willows. Maybe they care because they're curves and you can't map them. Anyway, where am I? Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. They're, they're uh, so the, the academy. So the academy, of course, lasts for hundreds of years or depending, it lasts about 40 years until Aristotle says, Screw this for a game of soldiers, goes off and founds his own school, but it humps along with Plato's lesser gifted students. One way or the other, it changes mode from pure philosophy to a kind of a pure school of skepticism, a more Socratic uh, a version where everything that is taught is questioned, which I guess, you know, if you're founding a Platonic Academy, that's not terrible. Uh, and then basically... Uh, in a big fight between skepticism and stoicism, they, they wound up uh, splitting the academy again. And re- roughly at, during that uh, academic bun fight, uh, the Romans come along and uh, good old uh, Sulla, uh, the one of the worst of the Republican Romans, uh, conquers Athens and loots it to the bare walls. And in addition, tears down the academy because his goal as a Roman is to prevent any locus of Greek independence from remaining. The Greeks have been causing people problems for literally hundreds of years. At that point, Sulla intends they not cause the Romans any problems. And the whole geometry sign got up his nose. It did. He was mad. He was like, he thought people were making an Archimedes joke. So, took it down. Um, And uh, again, if you are a dictator, as Sulla was, the last thing you want is a bunch of guys whose job is to question everything. You would rather have a bunch of guys whose job is to find cool rhymes for Sulla. Um, that would be yes, a better you job. Want to cut the funding and start an uncritical thinking course. Yeah. Again, referring to the present day. Um, so, uh, that's the OG Platonic Academy. That's the real academy. That's the cool one. Right. But then there's the Neoplatonic Academy. Yes. And this is founded 410, uh, AD, uh, roughly speaking. Uh, and its tutors include, uh, Plutarch of Athens. And you yes. know that since he's called of Athens, he's not the Plutarch. He's another Plutarch. He's not famous Plutarch. He's a different Plutarch. Yes. And, uh, a bit of the crossing of the, the segment streams here. Uh, he and other teachers of, uh, the Neoplatonic Academy were practitioners of theurgy. Thus also making this a consulting occultist segment, uh, yep. or at least a cameo of a consulting occultist. So because Neoplatonism takes the sort of, tendencies of regular Platonism to become mystic baffle gab and says, that's the fun part. Let's study that. <laughs> critical and thinking. What? <laughs> Let's do critical magic. thinking, schmidtical thinking. You're not going to summon daemons with critical thinking. That's not how it works. And, uh, Neoplatonism is sort of the intellectual underpinning of Gnosticism. Uh, they, they grew up in the same crib basically and, and uh, fed off each other in a metaphor that went sideways even more than I'd <laughs> intended it to. And so the notion of, of the notion that there is a real universe that you can only barely apprehend and a pretend universe that you live in is of course, the fundamental theological concept of Gnosticism, where there is a real God who you can barely apprehend and a created universe that is full of garbage and was created by the devil or right. a flawed, hate, hateful demiurge. And your job is to follow the spark of Jesus's teaching back yeah. to the real universe. This Obviously, world sucks. Let's make up another world that we can invent stuff about. Exactly. A cooler world, one with uh, magical gods in it that will come and help us. And uh, that is one of the things that Plutarch of Athens does and Proclus, 
who is probably a the, the guy who sort of said, let's take all the cool baffle gab and let's try and put it on a tripod, at least, of legitimate philosophical grounding. Because, again, it is, as the name indicates, descended very strongly from Platonism. So Proclus is the philosophy half, Plutarch is maybe more the, the magic half, and then there's a bunch of other dudes, and they hang around in a big house that they sort of name the Neoplatonic Academy, and at some point, I guess this is the first thing they teach you in philosopher school, talk to the government into paying for it. And this is the part that Justinian winds up having a problem with. Justinian says, as a as a good Christian, literally as the man in charge of good Christianity, I feel that we should not be paying a bunch of pagan goofballs to at the very least, uh, give intellectual tinder to Gnostics and at the very worst, summon up pagan demons. So you're cut off. No more funding for you. And he writes that, uh, th- that as an, as an edict in 529. And according to uh, later tradition, the Academy then picks up their sticks and goes off to Persia with all of their magic books and their wonderful works. And for some reason, people who should know better, like Bertrand Russell, imagine that they also brought valuable texts of science with them uh, into Persia and took it away. And there was no more science ever in the in the West after right. 529, and, and which they, is... And they give it to the, the Sassanid king, Khosrow I. That's right. satisfying. And uh, even more to the point, uh, there were other similar academies at the time yes. that, that persisted in the Hellenistic world. So the, in the in the Byzantine world, in the Byzantine world. So these are not the this is not the the beginning of the Dark Ages. Uh, the people who wanted a nice, neat, poetic narrative. Here's where the Dark Ages begin. This last library is destroyed. No, there's still a school in Alexandria. There's a school in in Syria, in Antioch and Edessa. There are other schools that we probably don't know anything about uh, because they didn't get super famous. But we know, for example, that even in um, b- uh, the Byzantine Empire in in Constantinople, there's not a break in tradition because the works of all of these guys at the Neoplatonic Academy were copied by monastic copyists in the Byzantine Empire throughout the whole period. So even though they weren't being paid a stipend, their their knowledge and their wisdom was still being copied into the Byzantine libraries. So the whole thing is just um, Justinian being mad that people are openly openly um, uh, advocating talking to Greek uh, gods instead of proper God and Jesus and uh, saying, at the very least, I shouldn't have to pay for this nonsense. And people with an ideological axe to grind blowing it out of proportion. And interestingly, the flight to Persia may not even have happened because it's all based on one historical source reading decades after the fact that looks more like it's trying to explain why the treaty between uh, Byzantium and Persia includes a religious liberty clause. And the reason that they made up is, oh, the scholars that fled to Persia got homesick and went back to Byzantium and... Uh, Khosrow said, you can't persecute them, you have to do a religious liberty clause, when there's no evidence of that ever happening. Well, thank goodness that you have a time machine. Because when, when you run into a we don't know what happened, that is your your uh, your remit, as it were. Uh, as it so, were. Uh, we've established then that uh, saving the Neoplatonic Academy, keeping it open, stopping Justinian from pulling the funding, or at least finding a replacement source of funding, whatever it is that you're going to do to to rectify that. Mm-hmm. We've established uh, that this does not, in fact, 
prevent the Dark Ages in any way, shape, or form. And you have the dossier in front of you from Time Incorporated. So I do. Why do they want you to do this then? Um, I believe that basically it's a notion of uh, multiple streams, right? You've got a redundancy situation where, uh, as I said, the works of Damasius, the works of Simplicius, the works of the other scholars at the Neoplatonic Academy were copied in Constantinople. But as we know, Constantinople gets itself burned down in 1204 by the Venetians and the Fourth Crusade, and a lot of those works get lost. So I believe that the reason that uh, the, the Neoplatonic Academy is being kept open is to ensure another stream of copyists. And if you look sort of forward in time, by the ninth century uh, or thereabouts, the Byzantine Empire is worried that all of the old uh, books are falling to pieces and they begin sponsoring, recopying a lot of these texts. So if they're worried about it in Byzantine times, then it is probable that there are texts that were lost and those might not be uh, the works of the Neoplatonic philosophers, but they might have been the works of intermediate philosophers or say lost plays of Sophocles or something else that'd be kind of nice to have. And the notion being since there's copyright issues, if we just go back and take the books out of the library of Alexandria and publish them, the notion is to try and create a world where more of the uh, Greek cultural and uh, intellectual heritage survives by adding one more ground zero for intellectual copying and uh, transmission. And if you put it in Athens, the idea, I believe, is that it will uh, tend to flow west earlier than 1453, when most of the Byzantine texts do flow west. That if you put it in a in a city that has a bigger uh, trading relationship with the cities of Italy, maybe it goes into Italy in the 11th or 12th century, as opposed to waiting to the 15th century the way that it had to. So profound students of this segment know that your theory of change is to get people drunk. But here yes. you're dealing with scholars and educational funders. Ken, how do you effectuate this? How can I effectuate that? Uh, well, the simplest and easiest method um, uh, is not getting Justinian drunk. It's getting his lovely wife, Theodora, drunk. And Theodora was a uh, circus people. And we all know that circus people mean fun <laughs> in history. Uh, she was a party girl uh, before she married uh, the emperor and got uh, religion and got respectability. But... She still had um, uh, interest in, you know, sort of reminiscing about old times, shall we say. And I believe that should a uh, well-spoken, weirdly pink scholar from uh, uh, Mystic Islands in the West show up at court with a bottle of the good stuff, Theodora might be interested in maybe having a tipple. And uh, it's only a little bit before you say, you know, Theodora, it'd be fun if those guys were given a stern talking to about summoning demons. But on the other hand, they make some darn good copyists and... Papyrus don't last forever. I think it's easy enough to then get Justinian to make government support contingent on them, basically serving also as a publishing house or a scribal uh, community, in addition to being a bunch of jerks that sit around trying to summon up uh, the god Mercury. So you're pulling rank on the emperor, basically. Exactly. I mean, you know, go 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 to go to Mrs. Emperor if you want the emperor to change his mind. That's that's not something I made up, but it's something that I've definitely. A believer in. So, uh, uh, you enjoyed Theodora's uh, company. Did you? I did. Uh, while you were there, did you find out if the thing that you forestalled, uh, was about to happen? Were they about to cart off all of the, uh, manuscripts to, uh, 
the assassinated King Khosrau? There was a, uh, there are indications in the historical text that at least one of the philosophers did visit Persia and have a philosophical dialogue. A guy named Priscus may have gone, uh, to, uh, Persia. And there are notes, uh, in a later travelogue that, um, uh, one of the, um, uh, philosophers had seen the Euphrates River, which is not likely if he'd stayed in, in Athens the whole time. Simplicius had, had seen a river near the Euphrates. And so there is an indication that at least one of them went to Persia to sort of sniff out the country and see what it was like. Uh, and maybe just out of a, you know, as intellectual curiosity, you read Herodotus and you're like, I'd like to go to Persia. He went to Persia. Um, so that did happen. And I, I think that the, uh, the, the back conjecture that I mentioned, uh, that someone was trying to figure out why there'd be religious liberty clause in the, in the peace treaty is combined with that one voyage, uh, by Priscian or Simplicius to Persia and, uh, creates that legend. Uh, so did you wind up having to frisk them and, uh, relieve them of, uh, key documents or do they just stick around now that the no, it's, it's just a matter of saying, Hey, Simplicius, when you're in Persia, um, here's a couple of obols. Cast around and see if there's any copies of Arian's other biography of Alexander or uh, Ptolemy's history of the campaign or Nearchus's uh, survey of the Indian Ocean. There's a couple of nickels in it for you if you bring them back for me. Funding is research. That's that's the way to an academic's heart. That's how we do it. Uh, yes. Uh, well, uh, now that we uh, can open up uh, Wikipedia and discover that there's a bunch of uh, archaic texts which have now been rediscovered, we know that you've uh, completed your task and thus that we've completed the task of recording yet another episode of this podcast. And it's a task that we will repeat next week and that you will hear the results of one week from now. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gown. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by Jim Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Make sure this podcast exists as more than a platonic ideal by joining such Patreon backers as... Josh Borlace. Yuri Horneman. Martin Rundqvist. James Stewart. And Jason Franzella. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Metaphor Drift, Metaphor Drift. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>